We just, uh, we just sang, on your word, I will rely, and so let's put that into practice by opening our scripture to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. We're grateful for what the Lord is teaching us through this, and uh, very happy for the ways that God is opening our eyes to the things of eternal truth through His mighty scripture. Let's go ahead and open up to that passage before we begin. <clears throat> When you're trying to examine and understand something, as we're trying to examine and understand the Word of God this morning, you might use many different types of tools to help you get a better look at the thing you're trying to understand. For example, if you wanted to spend some time trying to learn about a forest, you might walk through that forest. You might take a hike, look at it with your own eyes, breathing it in, feeling the soil beneath your feet, taking note of how all the smells of the plants and the flowers and the soil mix together. You might also benefit from finding some satellite images of that forest so that you might look at it from above with a bigger picture kind of perspective on it so that you might handle the overall size and scope of that forest and see how it fits into the surrounding areas that are around it. On the opposite end of the spectrum, it might also be helpful to use a microscope to take a magnified look at samples of the soil from that, surf, that forest so that you can look very closely at the elements that make up its ground and earth and discover some of the small, minute forms of life that call that place its home. Each time you use another tool, you enhance your ability to take in the knowledge of that particular subject that you are studying. You grow in the understanding of that thing. And we want to be careful as we study Scripture that we don't spend too much time staring into a microscope, that we forget to step back from time to time and admire the grandeur and the beauty of the trees that together make up a forest. So to pan back and get a look at the big picture view of Corinthians for a second, we have been essentially reading another church's mail. The Apostle Paul was a part of the church at Corinth for a time. He was instrumental, in fact, in its formation. He helped them to see their need for the gospel through his leadership. Many people were moved by the Spirit and repented and saw their lives turn from spiritual death to spiritual life. And by the time Paul writes this letter, that was several years ago. Writing now in this personal letter, Paul's compelled to continue to be a guiding hand to this congregation, even though God has moved him on to other missions. The Corinthian church has been struggling in a number of areas, and in order to help them get back on track, the Apostle Paul has been trying to address them directly and share with them the wisdom that God has imparted to him. They need to know that the wisdom God gives is different from the wisdom of the world. Most of them were Gentile believers, and so they didn't have the strong background and influence of the Old Testament to root them in the knowledge that God's wisdom is different than the, earth is, the earthly wisdom of the world. And so Paul is striving to help them see that what they gain from logic and reason, though it is not of zero value, it cannot compare to what God can provide to us through His Word, through the Spirit. They needed to understand that those who follow God cannot divide themselves under different leadership as the people of the world do. And we are feeling that in our nation right now. Their allegiance to the Lord should be so strong as a unifying factor that there should be no reason for them to divide under teachers and leaders. Their true leader is Christ alone. So partiality must be put to the side so that the church of God can be holy like the God that they are called to serve and worship. The Corinthians needed also to consider the internal sin that they were struggling with, that was leading them to engage in behavior 
that was not fitting for a church hoping to represent God in a fallen world. So these are all things that Paul is addressing in this letter. As we approach chapter 4, this, this help and service that Paul wants to render to them progresses even further. So let's read just two verses today, verses 6 and 7 for consideration. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Bow with me in prayer for just a moment. God, we thank you for your truth. And we ask that you would humble us, God, and give us a meekness that we might receive it well, Lord, that we might honor it, that we might cherish it above all other direction we gain from watching the ways of the world. Lord God, your way is the only good way. And so help us, Lord, to walk upon that path and to seek for the straight and narrow. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul and the other apostles are more than just megaphones for the truth. Their own lives are examples to the people that they are leaving, are leading. Examples that give a practical picture of what obedience to Christ should look like. So they've done more than just preach God's truth. Paul, Apollos, Peter, all the apostles, they have applied the biblical principles that they're preaching to their own lives. And how have they done that? We've seen examples of it so far in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> the apostles refused to preach their own ideas. Instead, they focused on preaching with steadfast emphasis on the power of Christ Jesus himself and the importance of his crucifixion. Their preaching is not distracted and fractured. It is focused on what truly matters. 1 Corinthians 2, 1-2, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so as Paul urges the brothers in Corinth and the sisters in Corinth, listen, keep Christ at the center. Do not become distracted by worldly tribalism, but instead focus on your Savior. He's not only telling them to do that, his preaching is a model of that focus and that, that, that pure-mindedness. The apostles have refused to boast in themselves, preferring in all things to glorify Christ and to draw people's attention away from them and to the Son of God. In fact, Paul describes himself and Apollos in very lowly terms. Remember in chapter 2, verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So he's got a very humble view of who he is, as do the other apostles. They're not trying to be superstars. They don't care about celebrity status. They want Christ to be exalted in them. Paul openly also confesses, in the first verses of chapter 4, that even though he doesn't know of anything that he has done wrong, that he doesn't even judge himself because he knows there must be things wrong in him that he doesn't see that God does. He's being real with the people who are in front of him, helping them to understand that, yes, he too is a sinner in need of forgiveness, that he's not some elitist up on a pedestal, but he is a believer who needs shepherding as well. So the example has been, has been very powerful. The image that these apostles has given to the churches through their actions and their words and their attitudes has been, been great. There are times when a good example is less than enough, isn't there? 
If you're familiar with the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, you might remember reading this, uh, this wonderful little piece of instruction that Peter gave to the church there. He said, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So I know many people in today's culture would like to look past this instruction in 1 Peter because it doesn't, it doesn't amplify this idea of equality that is so strong in our world today. People refuse to see biblical equality. That, that doesn't mean that we all have to be exactly the same, that we can have different roles under the kingdom, that we can each serve a purpose, even though our purpose might not all be exactly uniform. Here, the Apostle Peter is encouraging wives whose husbands may not be believers telling them, listen, you don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be an elder to lead your husband to Christ. Your conduct is a powerful testimony that they see every single day, in and out. They see you praying. They see you humble before the Lord. They see you submitting to the, the leadership of your husbands, even though your husband's not a believer, because you know that's what the Word has taught you to do. And so without a single word spoken, the humility and faithfulness of a wife who follows Jesus can make such a powerful impact on her husband that it might be a means by which God uses the Holy Spirit to wake them up and to lead them to repentance and faith. It is encouraging to know, isn't it, that we don't have to be masters of the language, ready at any moment to persuade someone to honor and obey Jesus, that our faithful example can make an impact even apart from persuasive speech. By being a, the spiritual person that God has meant you to be, you might lead your neighbor to Jesus Christ. By being the spiritual person that God has meant you to be, you might cause someone at your work to ask you about the hope that is found in you. Your neighbor might say, what is causing you to have the joy and peace that you have in this time when everyone else seems to be running for the hills and panicking for their lives? So our example can be a powerful testimony. But there are times when a good example is just not enough. And it has to be supplemented by words. We cannot refuse to talk about our faith and fall back on the idea that as long as we stay in our lane and let people observe our good deeds, then surely they will realize our behaviors from the Lord and will give Him glory for it. Some may, but many will not. Certainly it can happen, but the Scripture also commands believers to be ready to give a good defense for the hope that is within us. And that means that we've got to be willing to open our mouths and supplement our example with explanation and exhortation. Though Apollos, though Peter, though Paul had lived lives worthy of imitation in view of the brethren, the spiritual humility and wisdom that was on display in their lives was yet to be reproduced in the Corinthians. They were not following the example as Paul hoped that they would, and so greater more direct instruction was necessary. And so look how Paul does that. In verse 6, there is a structure. Paul has applied the guiding principles of God's word to himself and to Apollos. He's identifying here, look, we've lived an example to you. We have been godly in our conduct that you might see it and hopefully respond. And in the second half of verse 6, he says how he wants them to have responded. These are what we call purpose clauses. They are small snippets of a sentence that says, this is what I hope to accomplish by what I did at first. So we've been an example to you, and there are two reasons why. First of all, that they would help believers 
to not go beyond what is written. That the example of Paul and Apollos and Peter and the other apostles would help believers to not go beyond the things that are written for us. Now, if you get on Highway 4 and you head west, you're going to make your way over the pass. And then if you look to the sides of the freeway, particularly to the south side, you're going to see some very interesting defining geographical features of the East Bay landscape. You're going to see these lumps of dirt with slots cut into the middle of them. You know what those things are, right? They are old bunkers that were a part of the Concord Naval Weapons Station. They are supposed to be empty now. I cannot verify that to be true. But those bunkers were at one time a place where uh, the government of our country stored some very powerful and important munitions and governmental secrets. Um, those bunkers were not always empty. My stepdad grew up in Concord. His name's Billy. And when he was about the age of my oldest boys, he was about 12 or 13 years old, he and his cousin, they used to go off and do this thing that kids don't know about today. They would explore, and they would go outside, and they would climb trees, and they would, you know, rummage through the creeks trying to look for crawdads, and they would adventure, you know. We've solved that problem today with video games. But uh, they used to do that when kids were little back in the day. And so he and his cousin one time had ventured farther beyond their homes there in Concord than they normally had in the past. And uh, they had gone over some hills. They had, they had wiggled their way through some barbed wire fences to see what they could find. And as they were making their way through a certain meadow that they had not explored before, they heard the crunch of branches behind them and turned around to see two uh, army soldiers with automatic weapons drawn at the ready. They didn't know it, but they had gone beyond the borders and boundaries of the Concord Naval Weapons Station. They were past the limits of where they should have been exploring, behind, far beyond where it was safe for them to go. And so they were escorted uh, rather quickly off that property, interrogated a little bit, and then sent back to their parents. So the Word of God similarly draws lines for us. It gives us borders around where we should and should not go. The Word of God tells us where it is safe to tread, and it lets us know when we've gone too far. Paul and the apostles' example to the Corinthians should have given them a strong sense that God gives us the wisdom that we need within the pages of His Word and that we don't need to go beyond that. There's an article in the, in the Greek language here that doesn't actually translate over into the English in this particular verse. It's pronounced to in the Greek. And when that word is used in this organization, in this structure that is present in verse 6, it signals that what follows is a quotation. They didn't have punctuation in the ancient Greek language. But to would often signal that what was about to be said was a quotation of something that was well known from a different source. And so that means that the phrase, do not go beyond what is written, was meant to be a kind of proverb or common saying, most likely one that would be recognizable to Greeks and Jews alike. So here Paul is applying the proverbial saying to the scriptures in general, particularly the Old Testament writings, and specifically the verses that Paul himself has quoted so far in defense of his position to the Corinthians. It makes complete sense for Paul to call for this personal discipline amongst the brothers that he's writing to. Hasn't he already demonstrated to them that the Word is where we get our wisdom from? That if Paul's got anything to preach at all, that it comes from what God has revealed to him? To go beyond that written Word is to view the Word of God as insufficient. 
We heard that in our call to worship today, didn't we? In 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy, rather, 3, 14 through 17, by way of reminder. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it. The Apostle Paul wasn't telling Timothy there that you learned it from me. He's saying, knowing from who you learned it. You learned it from Christ. Christ gave it to me and I gave it to you. So it's from Christ. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And here is one of those purpose clauses again in verse 17. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So notice the emphasis that Paul is putting on his fellow elder, on Timothy there, teaching him that all Scripture is different than other writings, isn't it? It is breathed out by God. It is the very will of God in written, codified form. And so to have the Scripture is to have an anchor to which we should bind ourselves, knowing that if we don't stray from it, we don't go beyond what is good for us as leaders and as Christians. Continue in what you have learned and what you believe. Don't forget that it comes from Christ. And don't forget that all of it is profitable, that there is no section of God's Word that is useless to us. There's no part of God's testimony in the Scripture that is now obsolete and rendered useless. The New Testament is not superior to the Old Testament. We must not get into that mindset where we think that's great for historical enrichment. It's something that you know we might go back to every once in a while. But really, the New Testament is all that we need. No, we need the whole counsel of God's Scripture. Don't ignore those more difficult books and focus only on the more practical books. Don't, don't flock to the Scriptures that resonate with your heart and then ignore the ones that challenge you and cause you to need to grow. And we see also here in 2 Timothy that God has crafted this collection of truth in such a way that his people would lack nothing that is essential to their well-being in Christ. You can be complete because the revelation of God is complete for us. God knows what we need and he has provided it for us supernaturally through the canonization of his scripture. And so you are lacking no knowledge. If you can be complete with the scriptures of God, then what else do you need? Consider what a wonderful thing it is to have the written words of God before us. You have the standardized truth of Jesus Christ proclaimed to his people. It has been written down in a way that you can carry it with you wherever you go. We've been given tremendous tools by which we might search the scripture and know what God has to say about particular topics and about certain things that are pertinent to life. It is a word that we can go back to again and again. If we begin to, to get fuzzy about what we know or what we've learned, we can return to it. And the Word of God has not changed. No matter how much our minds change, the Word of God stays the same. What a tremendous blessing it is to have this Word that belongs to God in our own possession. I might have told uh, this story before. My, my uh, sister-in-law's mom uh, used to take vacations pretty frequently to Hawaii, and she would always kind of write us or give us a call and tell us the famous people that she saw over in Hawaii. That was like one of her favorite things, to see celebrities over there. And her, her best and greatest story was the time that she was sitting down in a restaurant in Hawaii, I think it was in Maui, and she looked across the restaurant and behold, before her eyes, was Kevin Costner. 
And I'm not talking about post-Waterworld Kevin Costner. I'm talking about Dances with Wolves Kevin Costner, right? This man was standing across or sitting across from her eating in that restaurant. And she's like, and I have a confession to make. I was done before he was done, but I waited and I waited and I waited for him to leave. And then when Kevin Costner left, you know what I did? I went over and I stole the straw out of his cup and I kept it. And it became like her prized possession, a straw that some actor had used to drink his water. Became like her prized souvenir from Hawaii. It is amazing how we will freak out over something so trivial. Somebody probably has a baseball somewhere. They caught it at a baseball game and said, this is from my, my favorite slugger. A grown man used a wooden stick to hit this over a fence and I will never let it go. <laughs> and you have the words of God in your lap right now. You have the revealed truth of the greatest wisdom eternity will ever know and it has been granted to you. Do you cherish the word of God? It is your prize do you treat it like that? Do you love this word? It is, it is your connection to God. It is the, the clear path of how to know him and how to worship him and how to be pleasing to him by trusting him. We need to love this word so much that we feel no compulsion to go beyond it. And hasn't Paul set the example in this regard? To this point, Paul has drawn heavily from what is written. He's not trying to convince the Corinthians with his own arguments and ideas. No, he goes back again and again to the word itself because not only is it as the Corinthians' standard for truth, it is Paul's standard for truth. And so we saw in 1 Corinthians 1.19, he says, For it is written. Where is it written? In the Old Testament. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the, the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Isaiah 29. He then goes on to Jeremiah 9 in, in chapter 1, verse 31, where he says, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's trying to help these Corinthians understand that it is ridiculous for us to try to look at ourselves as greater than our brother or sister. That our only boast should come from the one who made us and saves us. And where does he find that truth? He doesn't make it up. He finds it in the words of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2.9 quoting Isaiah twice, but as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So he wants them to have a right love for their Lord and a, and a right reverence for the wisdom that God exposes to us. And so where does he get that attitude? He gets it from a brother who walked the road before he did. He borrows from Jeremiah and shares that truth with us. And Jeremiah, no, no doubt, borrowed it from Moses. We all get this from God's holy word. And then chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. <clears throat> First he quotes Job. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. All of Scripture is God-breathed. Job 5.13 came from the mouth of one of Job's not-so-friendly friends, Right? And yet the things that he has to share, still there is truth in it. And so he catches the wise in their craftiness. We cannot think that we can outthink God. And then he goes on to quote, and again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile, Psalm 94, 11. So you see the consistency here that Paul uses in leaning on the word himself for his ministry to the Corinthians. The picture here is that God declares the boundaries of reality, and he uses the words of Scripture to mark out those boundaries. Before our faith is in Christ, we think we're wise. Before we humble ourselves before the Lord God, 
we think that our logic is sound, that our reason is powerful and accurate, that our, our, our tools of deduction are flawless, that we can develop case law and formulas and that we can figure this world out on our own. But the closer that we draw to Jesus, the better view we have of true wisdom and the weaker our personal intelligence seems to us, right? The farther you stray away from the Lord, the more you can buy into the law, uh, the lie that you are enough, that your wisdom can unravel the mysteries of life. But when you come face to face with the amazing living God of creation, you can't deny it anymore. When we keep our eyes on him, we cannot cling to the delusion. The light of his glory and grace are too effective at bringing our shortfall to light. So we begin to become humble. The closer we get to him through his word, the more we see what he says is true, the more we realize that what we think is true is not always naturally true, that we need Christ's direction and guidance. And just as my stepdad and his cousin were getting dangerously close to the munitions and equipment that could do them harm and could get them into serious trouble, so too does the word of God put up good fences that protect us from that which could have deadly consequences in our lives. So what do the boundaries of the written word protect us from, brothers and sisters? A multitude of things. But let me just give you a few examples of why we should feel safe so long as we operate within the borders of God's written word. God's written word protects us from apostasy. Apostasy is a word we need to be familiar with. We need to understand what it means. It means to turn our backs on what God has revealed is true to us. If the word is a lamp and a light, without it, we stumble through the dark. And guess what? We're eventually going to fall off a cliff if we stumble long enough. It rarely happens in one dramatic motion. Several high-profile Christian leaders, such as Josh Harrison and Jonathan Steingard, have recently gone public this year to say that they no longer believe. But that doesn't just happen overnight. That's not a one-conversation conversion. It's usually the small incremental compromises that we make in our lives when we start to set little bits of God's word to the side and follow our own paths instead. It's when we don't take God at his word and we begin to say, well, maybe that's just, maybe that's just metaphorical. Maybe that's just, I don't know, maybe that's just a story that's meant to teach us a good principle, but it's not really history. Friends, we cannot afford to let even a little bit of the word drop through our fingers because once we start setting bits and pieces of it to the side and say, that's not for me, I don't need that, then it's just a matter of time before the whole thing begins to unravel before us and we're not relying on Christ anymore at all. We've gone to a, a different well to, to draw our wisdom out. It is no longer the Lord who is leading us, but the myriad of voices in this world that are confusing and conflicting. When we stop treating God as if he is the keeper of the truth and act instead as if truth is something apart from God that anyone can tap into and use to their own advantage, then truth will elude us completely. So apostasy is one thing that the word of God keeps us from as he keeps us grounded in what is real and keeps us from being confused by the, the voices of the world. The second thing that the word prevents us from falling into is evil itself. The word teaches us what good is, and without it, we will call evil good. We will do what is right in our own eyes. Deuteronomy 12, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. 
They were worshiping false idols. They were mixing worship of Yahweh with worship of other gods. And so Moses had to bring the people back to the law. The book of Deuteronomy, the word Deuteronomy means second telling of God's law. He needed to return them to the thing that they were straying from because those boundaries had become loose. And before they entered into the Holy Land, before they received the promise of a place of their own, a home to call their own, Moses had to make sure that these people knew the boundaries that God had laid for them as his covenant people. And so the covenant of God keeps us away from the evil that the world says is perfectly acceptable and good and helps us to realize what God applauds, what he cares about, and what he desires for us. It keeps us from isolation. The boundaries of Scripture produce what we call orthodoxy, which is real, true faith. And when we all embrace the Word of God together, then the chances of us being unified are so much exponentially greater. How can we be near to one another if anything other than God's unchanging Word is the standard by which we conduct ourselves with one another? You show me a church where the Word of God is not preached, I'll show you a divided church. A church where people are fighting with one another. A church where people refuse to love each other the way that they are called to love because it is through God's word that we find togetherness with one another. You ignore God's word, you go beyond the borders of what is written, and it won't be long before you feel yourself isolated from those who really love the Lord God. The written word produces boundaries that keep us away from obstinance. (laughs) To be obstinate is to be Stiff-necked. You'll read about that again and again in the Old Testament, that the nation of Israel, what was one of their primary faults? That they were a stiff-necked people. If you think about that, when you're riding a horse and you have the reins in your hand, when you pull on one side of the reins or the other, what does that cause the horse to do? It tilts the head of the horse and encourages them to go to the right or to the left. God needs to have that kind of authority over us that when we need to move away from something dangerous, that he pulls the reins ever so gently, that we see where we need to go according to his word and we follow, but a stiff-necked people will not be led. A stiff-necked and obstinate people go the direction they want to go, regardless of what the word has to tell them. So the boundaries of scripture keep us from being stiff-necked. They keep us from being prideful and uh, stubborn against our God, They allow us to be moldable and meek that God might make us into who he wants us to be. And then a a fifth, it's not the last. There are many things that scripture keeps us from, but it keeps us from unjustifiable pride. Now, I I qualified that unjustifiable pride because not all pride is bad, right? Earlier, Paul didn't say to the Corinthians, under no circumstances are you to boast. No, he gave them instruction and wisdom about the right way to boast. He says, don't boast in yourselves. Instead, boast only and boast freely in Jesus Christ. Boast in who he is. Boast in what he has done. Take pride in your Savior, knowing that he is infallible and that his wisdom and truth passes the test of time. But there is a pride that wells up in us so easily, a pride that tempts us to think more of ourselves than we have any reason to think. And the more we wander from the boundaries of God's word, the more we begin to rely on our own judgment instead of God's. The more we start to put stakes in the ground and make our own fences that have nothing to do with what God has shown us. This inevitably produces in our hearts a pride in who we are, a pride in what we think, 
and a, proud, a pride about what we have done. We lose track of our depravity when the word is not before us. And we forget how to repent as a people. And friends, we, we must be a people of repentance. We must be willing to come before the Lord God and say, I need you today, Jesus, just as much as I needed you. When I was a mess and blind and dead spiritually, I need you today. Carry me through. The blessings of the word are described in such beautiful detail to us in Psalm 119. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Verse 35, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. There is a path laid out for us in Scripture and we should delight in the way that God has called us to go. Even though there's other ways that are easier and broader, we should delight in the path that God has set for us. Psalm 119.92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Is the law of God a delight to us? It is something we are grateful for. It is a boundary that produces security and peace in us, knowing that as long as we stay on the side of the fence that, that God has ordained for us, that we are in his will. Verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Where's the snare? It's on the other side of the fence. And God knows it. And that's why he says, do not go beyond what is written. So how might one go beyond? There are several ways that might occur. We go beyond when we add to the word of God. And we have seen several people who claim to be believers in Jesus Christ who have said, we have got the benefit and the blessing of more than what God gave to us in his word. A new revelation, an updated version. This is Bible 2.0, whatever it might be. When we add to the word of God, we are not putting more of his words on print. We are putting our words on print and putting his name on our words. So we cannot add to the word of God. We can't treat other writings as holy. We must not find ourselves listening to the words of those who claim a biblical gift of prophecy, but do not abide by the standards of a biblical prophet. That's an end around that's worked in church a lot today where someone says, well, yes, the, the scripture is, is the standard of life, but the Lord has given me a word and he says to do this. Well, if the scripture is enough, as Paul taught Timothy in chapter, or 2 Timothy verse, chapter 3, then why do we need a prophetic utterance? Why do we need someone coming along that gets a special tingling or a vision or a dream? Cannot we just look at the word of God? this thing that we trust so dearly that has not strayed us wrong, and can't we trust in that? So we cannot add to the word of God. We must believe the word, but we cannot believe the word only according to non-biblical frameworks. And if you want to hear more about this, then come tonight to our evening service as we look at the dangers of critical race theory and how people in America right now specifically are trying to get you to look at the Bible through a brand new fresh lens that is not giving you the real interpretation of Scripture, but a distorted and twisted version of Scripture that makes you see the Word of God through the lens of popular opinion today. We must see the Word for what it is, not for what men tell us it is. Thirdly, believing that the Word of God was only for initial things, but that now as saved believers with the Holy Spirit, we don't need the Word anymore, that is a way to go beyond the Scripture. And this is more common than you would think. People who believe that, oh yeah, I've been, a, I've been a believer for five years. Maybe I've even read through the whole scripture. So I'm essentially 
done with that part of my Christianity. Now I get to just live empowered with the truth that God has put into my life. And, and I essentially, I have the tools I need to wing it now. I'm, I'm mature in Christ. I don't need God's word. Friends, you need the milk of the word. You need the meat of the word. You need the bread of the word. You need every ounce of nutrients that the word has to provide for you, no matter whether you're two minutes old in Christ or 80 years old in Christ. You need the word of God. Do not think that you can ever graduate from this beautiful revelation of Jesus Christ. The apostles hoped their example would have two effects in the people of Jesus. First, that the Corinthians would follow their lead and live within the written word. And secondly, they hoped that their example would prevent the brothers from becoming puffed up, favoring one over the other. And this is particularly speaking to that fractional um, tribalism that was occurring in Corinth. How does going beyond Scripture cause us to become puffed up? And that's not so hard to answer. It creates in us an independence that is unfounded and returns us to the kind of mentality that Adam and Eve had in the garden when God had given them a command, said, follow this path. He had given them a boundary. And then through the temptation of Satan and through the, 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 the corruption of the heart, even Adam decided that they would go beyond what was spoken by God and that they would make a law for themselves, and they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That fall mentality produces in us an idea that we can survive independently from God, that we have within our own hearts all that we need. It matches quite nicely with what is so popular in our culture today, this idea of secular humanism, that mankind will always rise above, that mankind will always find a way to solve whatever problems he faces. The only way we rise above is when we're carried in the arms of Christ. So we, we cannot afford to allow ourselves to become puffed up with this idea that the word is good, but it's not all that I need. I also need my own ideas and innovations and creativity. Most of you know that I've, uh, I used to practice jujitsu quite a bit. It's a martial art. requires a lot of stamina and wrestling and knowledge. Knowledge more than anything, really. And one of the things that I love about jujitsu is how counterintuitive it is to the mind of man. I have seen triathletes who can run miles and miles, 26 miles, and then hop on a bike and ride miles and jump in the ocean and swim miles. These guys who have incredible physical fitness, I've seen them come in and say, I want to try this jujitsu thing out. And they get on the mat, and after about three minutes of intense wrestling, there's muscles in them they never even knew that they had that are just singing with pain. I've seen grown men who who could run a marathon, literally crawl over to the side of the mat and throw up in a bucket because they couldn't handle jujitsu. I've seen men who are strong and mighty tapped out by 17-year-old teenagers because that teenager had spent time under a master and knew something that that big, strong, and mighty man did not know. It's a very humbling sport. And so I, I appreciate the lessons that I learned in practicing that sport. It's similar to the Word of God. If we think we can go away and do what we want to do on our own apart from the Word of God, then all we're doing is acting as if we are bigger than we really are. We're puffing up our view of ourselves. I love what Jeremiah 12 says to this. This is the apostle, or not the apostle, sorry, the prophet Jeremiah, who many of you know had a very difficult tenure in following after God's commands. As a prophet, most people would look at his life and say, wow, did he have any victory at all? His victory was his obedience to the call of the word. 
But there were times when Jeremiah was frustrated as well. The nation of Israel was not listening to his prophecies. The nation of Israel was continuing in their stubbornness and in their disobedience to God. And so Jeremiah began to complain in chapter 12 to the Lord God. He said, How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? For the evil of those who dwell in it, the beasts and the birds are swept away because they said, He will not see our latter end. And this comes after quite a bit of, 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 of churning in Jeremiah's heart where he wishes he could bring justice to the people and punish them for their ignorance of God. But then listen to how God responds to the prophet in verse 5. He says, If you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And in a, if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? Though Jeremiah's heart is, is set on seeing justice and he wants to be the instrument of that justice, God says, you can't, even, you can't even get by with these men. And yet you're asking to do the things of God. You think that you can handle judgment. That's my job. Let me be the judge. You can't keep up with chariots, young man. We have to be humble in our approach to the scripture. And we have to be humble in the way that we apply that scripture, lest we become divided, lest we begin to think of ourselves as greater than our brother in Christ or, or wiser than our sister in Christ. Let us see ourselves as all under one Christ, all under one word that together is the pathway for us to walk. Uh, I love what Samuel Renahan said in um, his book, Mystery of the Covenants. He says, we must be humble enough not to pry and peer into what is not ours to know. He's acknowledging there that God hasn't given us information about everything. He says, yet we must be diligent in studying that which God has made known for our good and for his glory. What we can know, friends, we must seek. What we can know, we must take to heart. But let us not become so puffed up in thinking that we can know everything and that we must know everything. In humility, let us be thankful for what God has given and let us trust that it is more than enough. Friends, the word is not our safety net. It's not the thing that we go back to if we fail to do it on our own or if we need it. It is your ground upon which you walk. We always need the word of God. It is the foundation upon which we build. And as Paul encouraged in an earlier chapter, we must build with good things, with the things that God has given to us. Let us build upon the foundation of truth with more truth adding to our understanding of God's Word, more understanding of God's Word, until it all becomes in a greater focus and clarity. Paul warns against a certain kind of arrogance, doesn't he? That you might not be puffed up in favor against one another. So this is particularly dangerous to our unity with one another. When our, our uh, arrogance begins to make us think more of ourselves, then we tend to see our relationships spread farther apart instead of drawn closer together. And the Corinthians are experiencing that. We're going to see ways that they are in just a few, um, few weeks as we get into the later chapters of this letter. Partiality is an expression of pride. When we identify ourselves with one group over another, essentially what we're saying is, I am wiser than you. I am a part of the group that is advanced beyond where you are. If only you knew what I knew, if only you could understand what I could understand, then maybe you would be on my level as a Christian. And that's what we have in Corinth as some identify with Peter and his particular proficiencies in the Old Testament. Some others apply themselves to Apollos, who seem to have a very 
polished preaching style and was, was wonderful in the way that he used his words. And others say, no, I, I'm identifying with Paul, with this systematic man who has such great handle on doctrine. When we do that, friends, our pride ruins our fellowship with one another. We see this in the church when you have certain friend cliques that refuse to open their doors to other members. They always hang out with each other and there's maybe some really great fellowship within that small little bundle of people. But they leave, as you were, Christian orphans on the outside to fend for themselves. We see it in age associations when certain people will only hang out with people who are in their demographic, their specific walk of life. And how much wisdom do we miss out on when we don't spend time with those who are much younger than us, when we don't spend time with those who are much older than us? God wants us as one church together, despite our age, despite our ethnical backgrounds, despite our socioeconomical status, God wants us to be one. Think about how he speaks about it in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. And some of your translations there might actually say it is not puffed up. It does not think more highly of itself than it should. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1, now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So let us put aside this false idea that we have a greater knowledge than our brothers in such a way that might make us proud of ourselves and look down upon them. But instead, in love, let us build each other up so that we might all gain a greater wisdom of what God has given to us in his perfect word. So while the Corinthians were puffed up about their knowledge and the knowledge of their preferred teachers, Paul asks them three simple questions that we will close with that reveals to these brothers and sisters that they have still much to learn about themselves. He says, who sees anything different in you? Things have just gotten personal as he asks these questions. To this point, there's been a lot of metaphor. There's been a lot of third-person teaching. But now Paul is saying, let's drive this home. Let's begin to consider how this affects the, the, the personal heart. Who sees anything different in you, Corinthians? In other words, why are you worthy of being praised? Tell me why you should be exalted among your brothers. When you brag about who you follow, do you not see that you're trying to come across as somehow superior in judgment? As someone belonging to a more elite group of Christians that are worthy of a greater praise and honor, do you see the selfishness in that? Do you not realize that men and women that you think are superior to you are your own family, or are inferior to you, are your own family, that they're your own brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't you have a heart for them? Who do you think you are anyways, is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. This isn't the kind of behavior that impresses those who put Christ first. And throughout the letter, Paul is hoping to draw attention to a very sad and ironic truth, that there is something unique about these Corinthians. It's the thing that's unique about every believer, and that unique thing is the spirit that is within them. They are unique from the world. They are to be drawn out from the lost. They are to walk in a way that is clearly different than the lost nations around them. And instead of glorying in that together as one church, they want to divide among themselves. Who sees anything different in you, asks Paul. A humbling truth that those Corinthians then had to reflectfully consider about their own hearts. Christ in them is what sets them apart, but they have set that to the side in a way so that they could behave like the lost world around them, biting and devouring one another and looking down on the believers that they should be committed to lifting up. 
Second question, what do you have that you did not receive? In other words, if you have anything that's boastworthy in your life, where did that thing come from? Where, where do you have to give credit to for how you got that thing? And the answer must always be the same. All that we have is from Christ. Anything that we can look at and be rejoicing in, whether it is the house that you own, whether it is your ability to sing beautifully to the hymns that we, we sing on Sunday mornings, whether it is a mind that is reasonable and ordered, all things that you have that are good, they come from God himself. So how can I brag about something that I didn't produce myself? How can I credit myself for something that is a gift from the Lord God? And that is why the last question is, why do you boast as if you do not, did not receive it? How can we try to tie our victory back to our own self when our eyes have been opened to the fact that every victory we can claim must be tied to the sovereign power of a perfect God? At the beginning of the sermon, we talked about the ways that you might go about understanding a forest, firsthand experience, satellite images, magnification to look at the details. Now, as we conclude, I'd like us to remember that the learning that we do on the Lord's Day is much more than simply academic discovery. We come before the Word of God not to catalog information, not so that we might have some novel curiosity today that we didn't have yesterday, we come before the Word of God because it is a message intended to make an impact on the very fabric of who we are as His people. And so, yes, in a sense, we are reading another church's mail when we read Paul's words to the Corinthians. But we're also reading God's words to us, to His church today. And the things that we encounter in God's Word are intended to have a very real impact, not only on the way that we think, friends, but on the way that we live the way that we love, and the way that we worship. So we may, be, may we be humbled as we consider the blessings of God's Word, and may we recognize the blessings that its boundaries provide if only we will learn to live within them. Would you bow your heads with me as we have a word of prayer and conclusion? God, settle our souls on these truths. We thank you for the Lord's Day and for this weekly pause where we can put other things on hold and focus more clearly and succinctly on the things that you have given to us. And let us rest in those things today, Lord God. Let us not be done with church when we go home, but let church follow us there. I pray that we would contemplate these truths, that we would consider the boundaries that you have given and that we might rejoice in them. Let us go back and read Psalm 119 and think about the beautiful ways that your word has encouraged us and strengthened us, has buffeted us and protected us, how it is a sanctuary from evil, how it is a... a, a a way by which we might decode wisdom and understand what is truly from you and what is just simply from the world. We thank you, Lord God, for the friendships that we have under the guidance of this word, and we pray that you would draw us together in love as your church, as we care for each other, as we are committed to one another, Lord God, and as you work through us to bless one another. And we thank you, God, for all this truth in Jesus' name. Amen.